Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by writer, director, and actor, Britt Marling. For the past 15 years, Marling has made her mark by telling daring, ambitious stories, often set in the near future, that reveal something, or frankly many things, about our disquieting present. From films like Sound of My Voice and Another Earth, to the Netflix original series The OA, she's explored everything from capitalism and climate change to the apocalypse and the afterlife. She's done this primarily with director and co-conspirator Zal Bontmangalish. The two met at Georgetown back in 2001 and have worked together ever since. Their latest collaboration is for FX, entitled A Murder at the End of the World. It stars Emma Corrin as Darby Hart, a Gen Z amateur detective who's been invited to a remote retreat by a reclusive tech billionaire, played by Clive Owen. Once at the symposium, Darby stumbles upon a deceased guest, quickly snapping into action to prove there was foul play. This is a clip for a murder at the end of the world. Welcome. It's so exciting to see you all here. You know him? A long time ago. Everyone I've invited here has something extraordinary to offer the group. Did you know LA Times called her Gen Z Sherlock Holmes. 
We don't know who did this. We don't know why. And we don't know if they are done. You're afraid. Terrified. There's something going on that we don't fully understand. You're just another guest on a retreat. So long as you play the part. The thing about getting close in a case... Careful, girl. ...is that you start to burn. And the only way to put out the fire is to solve it. To finding a way out. That was from FX's A Murder at the End of the World. New episodes are available to stream every Tuesday on Hulu through December 19th. In the spirit of those classic Agatha Christie novels, the show is a tried and true murder mystery. And yet, Marling and company can't help but be a little bit prescient, especially around the future of artificial intelligence, which plays a big role both in the show and in this conversation. I talked to Britt in front of a live audience at this year's On Air Fest at KCRW. And to be honest, like our first episode on the show back in 2019, we kind of talk about everything. Her early years as an actor before she found writing, the public outcry that followed the cancellation of the OA, the state and future of Hollywood, her debut as a director on this excellent new show, and the power of collective action and artistic collaboration. That's all coming up next with our guest, the one and only, Britt Marlin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Without further ado, please welcome Sam and Britt. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome. Britt, how are you doing? I'm good, Sam. The last time we did this, it was in 2019. You were just about to put out part two of the OA. Yeah, thanks. A lot's happened since then. I mean, like a lot. And I thought there are so many places to begin, but I figured we start with a passage from Rebecca Solnit's 2020 memoir, Recollections of My Non-Existence. In it, she writes, Becoming a writer formalizes the task that faces us all in making a life, to become conscious of what the overarching stories are and whether or not they serve you and how to then compose those versions with room for who you are and what you value. I mean, I feel like that's a mic drop moment. Do we need to even say yeah, anything honestly, else? Honestly, thanks for coming out tonight. I think we're good. <laughs> no. In the four years since we sat down, as you and Zal began to embark on this new show, what were those overarching stories that you wanted to tell? And, and where do you and your values fit into them? Sam always goes so deep right from the start. It's like, but it's good. It's so good. Welcome um, to Talk Easy. Welcome to Talk Easy, which should be Talk Hard, actually. Should, really? You want to rebrand it? I think maybe. Okay, we'll talk to Malcolm. Afterwards, we'll talk to Malcolm. Um, I guess around that time, I had I had written this like op-ed for the New York Times called I Don't Want to Be the Strong Female Lead, which was a kind of complicated phrasing, but was really just an essay trying to wrestle with the idea of like, what to do about female protagonism. And I guess one of my answers had been to kind of, as a storyteller, operate in a space a little bit outside reality. Because if you deal with reality head on and female protagonism, you're just constantly dealing with some measure of oppression or being an oppressed character. And it felt like with science fiction and fantasy, it was this way to get a bit outside. Adrienne Marie Brown has this really beautiful term I've heard her use. She's an activist and a writer. She says, she calls it resistance fiction. This idea that like all fiction either reinforces the status quo or rebels against it. Mm. And so I felt like I was always operating in the space of science fiction and fantasy as resistance fiction, like trying to figure out ways to call something else that isn't quite reality in. And then I think part of what started to form with the idea of a murder at the end of the world was maybe braiding some of that, calling something in, but also trying to make something more in the world as we know it present day and contend with the realities of, of violence against women and not show it on screen in a way that perpetuated it, but just deal with the echoes of it. And somewhere in that... <laughs> stew, you know, and Rebecca Solnit, I'm sure is actually a huge part of this because I used to have long conversations with Rebecca. We'd walk up and down the beach in San Francisco and we'd talk about a lot of these ideas of this struggle as a woman to realize yourself when you can't often find yourself mirrored back to yourself in fiction. And this idea of this character just sprung forth, Darby Hart, the coroner's daughter, 
who like grew up on crime scenes and her, you know, she was in a morgue from the time she was like a kid. And her coming of age moment was when she was a little girl over the body of a Jane Doe, you know, the bones of this Jane Doe who was never going to be identified. And her coming of age moment is a having to contend with the potential of violence being in her future as a, as a woman coming of age. And how that might not defeat her, but how that might make her strong and flinty and compel her to solve some of these cold cases. And so those were like the early feelings. And then, of course, it got braided with a lot of other stuff, including Iceland and tech billionaires and secretive retreats and robots. And, you know, it gets I never know how to stop once I get started is the problem, Sam. By the way, the best problem to have. <laughs> In this new program, we're going to watch a clip in a second. There is this white tech billionaire um, obsessed with space travel. Um, and I just, I, I have two questions, just normal ones. Um, has Elon Musk seen the show? And um, how grateful is he that someone as attractive as Clive Owen is playing him? You know, it's so funny. When we went to write this character, and I'm curious what Clive would say about this, we were actually thinking a lot about like how can we make somebody who feels three-dimensional, who like has qualities and characteristics we admire even as writers, mm -hmm. a kind of like daring do and a, an ability to imagine stuff that doesn't exist yet and then like will it into reality. That is also complicated by the fact that you know, Andy Ronson, this character, has like real fears and vulnerabilities, and those fears and vulnerabilities lead him sometimes in dangerous directions. <laughs> and so, um, but he was an amazing character to write. And I think the most challenging one to write, and I think Clive Owen actually did a lot of the writing. Mm. I was always said to Clive that like the best actors are also writers. And he'd be like, oh, Brit, you know, that's, that's not true. But I really think it's true because- Was that his accent you just did? I can't do his accent. Can you do it? No, I'm not the actor. You could, Sam. I feel like you could do it. Are you not going to do it because you're on strike right now? I am. I'm actually. I'm totally on strike, so I can do no acting right now. I can. I can only be here as a writer and director. We can talk about the abstract idea of acting. I think, right? As long as it's like super abstract. Um, this this clip that we're about to watch. Uh, do you want to set it up for us? Yes. Yeah, so this is in the beginning of chapter one, and Darby Hart, uh, our young amateur sleuth has received a mysterious invitation in the middle of the night. She wakes up to it on her computer, and it's Andy Ronson, this tech billionaire who's, like, very famous, uh, has sent her a text being like, I'd like to send you an invitation. She, so she downloads this thing on her phone and opens it, and this augmented reality app enters on her phone, and then this scene comes right after that. So this is her first interaction with Andy Ronson's world and the augmented reality that he's designed. This is from chapter one of A Murder at the End of the World. I'm here on Andy Ronson's behalf to invite you to his 2023 retreat. A small gathering of minds. A symposium to discuss technology's role in ensuring a human future. All expenses paid. Flight, lodging, food, whatever you should need. The plane departs in two weeks and returns the week after. Would you care to join us, Darby? Um, I'm sorry, I... It's just, um, I don't really have the words. That's quite all right. Andy's introduced me to things that have left me speechless, too. <laughs> yeah, like what? Vivaldi's Spring. Beyonce. No. The collected works of Borges. The television program, The Simpsons. 
I love The Simpsons. I binged it when I got my wisdom teeth out. You felt a kinship to Lisa. It's hard being the smartest person in most rooms. It's, um, it's lonely. Yes. You won't be lonely on the retreat. It's an impressive gathering. I'm sure you'll find the other attendees of the retreat just as fascinating as Lisa Simpson. Will Lee Anderson be there? Of course. Your work is of great interest to both Lee and Andy. What do you say, Darby? Will you join us? At what point did you put Beyonce on that short list? Right from the beginning. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. That's what I, thought. I was like, Beyonce, Borges, Lisa Simpson. Yeah. Those are some of the best things. But Not actually, we took this scene and we had early access to chat GPT before it was released to the public through a friend of ours who was a programmer. And we actually like played with it and we input this idea of this scene. And what the AI spat back to us was this idea of like, oh, well, Lisa Simpson will also be on the retreat because, of course, <laughs> Chat GPT three thought Lisa Simpson was just a gal from, mm. you know, down the street, a luminary who might come on a retreat, and it was fun to really play with, like, and it, important to us to tell a story where we embedded the limitations of technology and the humor and the awkwardness and the yeah. In the show, the retreat, the express purpose of it is to understand technology's role in our future. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because you started writing the program in like 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. And in the four or five years since, what was science fiction is now very much science present yeah. in some way. Yeah. How has your relationship changed with it? And how do you make sense of it in this moment? Yeah, it's bizarre. It's bizarre to write something where in the beginning we would have to explain to people so many of the things. People would read the scripts and we'd have to explain what a deep fake was or explain how large language models work. And then as you're editing it, you know, we were editing the show and we needed some uh, additional dialogue recording from Clive. And normally you just sort of type in subtitles as you're editing for what the actor will eventually do. And then you call the actor in and they record all this dialogue and you lay it on top of picture. Well, we didn't have Clive for a while. So one of our editors just used deep fake and deep faked Clive's voice. So when Clive came in to do his ADR recording, he was like listening to some of it. And he's like, God, I don't remember saying that line. And we were like, that's because you didn't. Yeah. A deep fake said it for you. And so that was crazy because when we'd written the script like three years prior, you just didn't have any of those abilities. So a lot of things like leapt into the present moment. And what we wrote as science fiction became sort of just science present. And I think fundamentally, it's a story that wrestles with how a lot of this stuff is happening so fast and how it it's shaping things and shaping us so intensely. Like, I, I, mean, I think about this just in terms of my own ability to imagine, like when I'm writing, I used to be able to sit really still in a chair and like go into my imagination for like hours at a time. And now my thinking is a lot more fractured. Like I've been, my cell phone has sort of fragmented my ability to focus. So I've, I'm used to these pings and dings and like dopamine rushes that come with them. And my concentration is different in a way. And so I think there are just all these unintended side effects. And there's also these beautiful things. I mean, part of this story is really a love story about, you know, an outsider girl who's like going to her high school smelling like formaldehyde from the morgue, you know, a real outcast. And meet somebody on the internet, you know, in the amateur sleuthing forums who she falls in love with. And they go on this like 
Badlands, you know, trip through the American West trying to solve this cold case. That's a relationship that could only have come from the internet. And her amateur sleuthing prowess is something that could only have come from the internet. I mean, the fact that she can go on this retreat and sort of authorize herself to be the detective to solve a crime that happens there is only possible because Darby Hart has logged 10,000 hours as an amateur sleuth in her like early 20s. Otherwise, you just get Nancy Drew, Mm. you know, but we're trying to tell a story where she's a credible detective and it's only possible because she's also a child of the internet. Also only possible because of your imagination. And I think I want to go back to when it was less distracted and where storytelling kind of began for you, which I believe happened as a kid when your parents sent you to summer camp in the Florida Everglades. Sam, who have you been talking to? Your mother. She's she's so lovely. Sam did meet my mother once. She called her before this. She gave her number out right when I met her. (laughs) Sounds like my mother. The Everglades. Yeah. I got kicked out of that camp. I got kicked out of that camp because... Why did you get kicked out? Well, Sam, (sighs) I was trying to be a good Girl Scout. I was, you know... That's not why you got kicked out. No, it is why. It was a Girl Scout camp. And what does one do at Girl Scout camp? I don't know. I guess sell cookies, but I wasn't any good at that. Um, (laughs) And it was a sleepaway camp. You're selling cookies on the sleepaway camp? Well, you maybe like learn how to sell them or you get badges or I don't know. The point is, Sam, I didn't have a lot of badges. I wasn't good at being a Girl Scout and I was trying to make friends, you know. And how did you make friends? I started telling these ghost stories at night and there were these knots in the wood. They were these like really bad wood cabins and there were these like knots in the wood and I made up, as all the girls were asleep at night in their bunk, I would tell them the story out loud about how they were the eyes of ghosts. Was that the first line of it? (laughs) Yes, basically, that they were ghosts that were watching from the past. And (laughs) it got pretty scary, the story. So the (laughs) girls started calling their parents crying the next day and asked to be brought home. So instead of sending all the other girls home, my parents came and picked me up. And I I was never allowed to go back to the Girl Scout camp again. So glad you brought this up. I'm just trying to pinpoint the origins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. I'm just, let me ask you, like, you're, you're on the ride home with your parents. Yeah. Are they saying like, wow, you have a real gift for storytelling. I don't think they loved like driving. I realize now that the idea behind camp is that you send your children away right. for a period. Like that's the big con. You get them excited about like pictures and the brochure, but really it's like get out of here for eight weeks uh-huh. so we can have a life again. So no, they were not pleased about having to drive like three hours into the Everglades to pick me up from the edge of the swamp <laughs> because like so many children were calling and being like, this girl's stories are too dark and she's eight. But, this, but that's a compliment of how skilled of a storyteller you were. <laughs> I mean, I thought so. I thought I was weaving I so. a really exciting yarn. Yeah. You know, but you clearly have this penchant for storytelling, but your parents both worked in, in real estate. And so you didn't really have a template for what a career in the arts would look like. In fact, your mom said to you explicitly as a child, To be a free woman, you have to be a financially independent woman. I wonder, when you look back now, how much do you think 
her advice shaped the way you imagined your own future? I mean, I guess it shaped it in a lot and it shaped it a lot of ways in the sense that like I went to school and I studied economics and I went to, you know, be a summer analyst at a bank. And I really thought I was going to have that career. And I'm sure in large part because I thought, you know, my mom is like, saying to me, this is important to have resources so you can make your own decisions as a woman. That was Georgetown and Goldman Sachs? That Yeah, that was that. And then I, you know, dropped out of school and didn't take the job offer. And in the end, I think a lot of what, I think she really influenced, they both influenced me in a lot of ways. And I think it was this idea that to be a filmmaker, you have to be an entrepreneur, especially now, you know, it's, it's like things have gotten so hard. It's so hard to make art anymore. Mm. And so you have to find, you have to run a business as much as you are trying to make an art, trying to make subversive, interesting stories inside that. And so I, I think I really owe a lot to them for that sense of, I used to think that what they did was so far outside of what I was doing, but really as people who were working in real estate, they would come to a place where there was nothing, just like land and then they would imagine something there and then they'd draw blueprints and then they would build people build build it with a team of people and then where there was nothing there was suddenly something and in some ways mounting these endeavors of making what are basically like these mm -hmm. sort of eight hour movies is really like that well the first time you mounted that endeavor it was with zon and mike cahill yeah and they were students, they were uh, classmates of yours at Georgetown, and they came up to New York City while you were interning at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And they tried to enlist you in a 48-hour film festival, which they wanted to shoot conveniently in your uncle's apartment. Yes. And they were already there. Yeah. What was the first film, and why were so many tables damaged? <laughs> oh, my God. God, this is all sounding so dark, Sam. Okay, so we we did this film for the 48-hour film festival. I, at the time, was the summer analyst, but I happened to be, for some reason, I was a summer analyst on two companies that were having IPOs at the same time, and I was, like, the only analyst. So I was, like, underwater at work, and they wanted to do this 48-hour film festival. And I was like, y'all are insane, no. But then they were like, we're at your uncle's, you know, place already, so we're at least shooting here. So I agreed to be in it. We stayed up for two days straight making this movie. And who were your castmates? Nick Kroll was in it. Nick Kroll was a friend of ours from Georgetown. It was a home invasion movie <laughs> about people who break into the house and then this couple has to contend with it. And we basically broke a lot of my uncle's furniture. Were the police involved in any way? The we were so loud that I think the neighbors called the cops and they, they came. But we just kept shooting because we were like, this is production value. So they're in the short film. The cops are in the short film. Wow busting up the party that Nick Kroll and I were having, basically. We did not win the film festival, and it is a very bad movie. But what I felt from the experience was... Actually, before you say that, we actually have it here, and we can... No, I'm joking. No, we don't. We don't have... <laughs> Sam told me earlier, he's like, I have something else I'm going to show. And I was like, I don't even know how he could have got that. <laughs> Nick you're, would die if you showed that. I've known you for 10 years. I've never seen you look more scared. I mean, I was just thinking to myself, I was like, God, did he contact the 48-hour <laughs> film festival and get it from their archives? <laughs> That'll be the next one. Yeah, I'm sure. So if the film wasn't particularly good. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> the experience of it must have done something to stir something inside of you that made you think, oh, this yeah. is something. This is something that's not Goldman Sachs. Well, I felt like... 
whether I was at Goldman or I was doing the film, either way, I wasn't sleeping, you know, like it was just (laughs) this experience of being awake and like drinking a lot of Red Bull. But I felt that I really loved what we did. And it kind of even didn't matter that it wasn't good because we enjoyed making it so much. And there was this incredible energy about everyone coming together and being scrappy, not having many resources, begging, borrowing and stealing everything and making something. I think that that experience taught me to be really into the process and not the results. I don't know how to get into the idea of individual authorship for me. Like I get so much pleasure, maybe because I was a lonely kid by myself, it's, you know, getting kicked out of summer camp. I get so much pleasure out of telling stories with other people and the the idea of choral authorship, like what can happen when a group of people come together and believe in something, believe in this story for a period and believe in it so much that you work 14, 15 hour days and all you think about from the moment you're awake to the moment you sleep is how to make this story even better than it is on the page. And there's some beautiful pathos and energy about that. And and I think the people in the filmmaking community all become sort of addicted to that feeling of the intensity of that camaraderie and the, you really don't feel alone in those spaces. Like you feel very held by the story altogether. And that's an amazing experience. You three took that to the most, I think like extreme. I mean, the three of you move cross country in a station wagon. You land in Los Angeles, like no contacts, no friends, no sense of what this place is. And you start going out for like these auditions. The one thing you did have was like backstage magazine, right? Yeah. And they had like open casting calls. Yeah. And do you remember any of those roles that you went out for? Like Babe 2 and Blonde Girl in a Bikini 7. Like, I mean, it's very hard to just show up if you're not in the union and you're not, you know, I hadn't even been in a commercial. Like I didn't have a reel or anything. So I was really starting from scratch. So I would just show up at these things like, you know, someone told me when I I showed up to the first one in like jeans and a t-shirt and they were like, baby, that ain't gonna cut it. And then someone told me how to like curl my eyelashes and like, they were like, get a pair of heels. And I went out on a couple of those. And then I was like, you know, this just doesn't feel that good. And I think that's when I realized that the only way I could figure out my way as an actor was to try to teach myself to write and become a writer. And and then I just didn't stop doing that. <laughs> was that daunting to go like, I'm not taking this path. I'm not taking this actor's path. I'm going to write in opposition. I mean, I guess it was daunting. I also wasn't booking any of the parts anyway. And, and I think also I, I was reading stuff that wasn't very inspired, that felt like even if I got the part, I'd kind of be sad to do it. You know, there was this idea in town that like you had to wade through the swamp to get to a place where you could do the stuff that was meaningful to you or felt good. And you had to play bikini number seven. You had to do that a couple times at least. And I didn't quite know how to do it. And and it felt like, okay, I, I got to learn how to write. <laughs> I got to learn how to write in a way that like everyone wants to stay in the cabin. Mm-hmm. They don't like call their parents and ask to go home. Like got to have to figure out how to make put those feelings in a compelling narrative that invites you in. And so I spent a lot of time in the library downtown here, just reading screenwriting books and reading plays and reading scripts. I think I read Silence of the Lambs like 120 times. Why that I read Antigone. Because I think I was looking for female characters that felt authentic and 
alive and like the women I know in my life, like women that were like my mom or my grandmother or my, some of my friends, like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs was so, yeah, she was never, I mean, I know she was FBI in training, but she was never asking any, anyone for permission. She believed in herself and there, then we, the audience believed in her or Antigone, reading Antigone and just thinking now, of course, Antigone for being so bold and so brilliant as a young woman has to die in the narrative. So I kept thinking like, well, is there any way we can write women like this who don't die? Can they live? You know, can they get to the end? And, and, and it's I like think that's a sad, was, but simple question. It's a sad, but simple question. I think we asked ourselves that a lot with writing Darby Hart. It was like, really just thinking about the crime scene that happens in every movie where the detectives come up to the scene of the crime and they have the badge and they have their authority and they're over usually the body of a dead young woman who's usually mutilated or naked or and it's an erotic charged dark image and that image or the desire to solve that is what sort of sends you on the thrust of this story and it felt like can we put some clothes on that woman on the ground there can we stand her up and give her a history can she be the person who, from just her own self-belief, authorizes herself to solve the mystery? Not just the mystery of this crime scene, but the mysteries of the world right now. Like, the, the big questions of, like, who done it? Like, how did we get to this place? So, yeah, I think that's where some of that came from. After the break, more from Britt Marlin. Stay with us. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. The way you went about answering those questions, mm. you're in a Silver Lake apartment. In the mornings, you write with Mike upstairs. In the afternoons, you would walk downstairs and write with Zong. 
that process of of spending the mornings like that, afternoons like that, working with your friends that you made in college, trying to answer those questions you're talking about, is that how Another Earth and, and Sound of My Voice, those first two movies, is that how those happen? Yeah, I mean... To be honest, I don't know if I was asking all those questions then. I think I was doing things from a much more unconscious place then. But there, but I did feel this uh, incredible energy to try to do it, to try to figure out how to take ideas, big ideas, and put them into movies, you know, which is not that much real estate in terms of storytelling. It's like 90 minutes. It's so short. How do you communicate in like an economy of images most nearly what you feel or mean. And Mike and Zoll and I had been making movies since we were kids at Georgetown together. And we lived together because we didn't know anybody else out in LA, you know? And so we just had what kind of felt like an eternal summer camp where we would make money during the day making doc this docu-reality series for MTV called True Life. And then at night we would just, you know, be writing. And what we were really trying to do was figure out how to make movies. And of course, as we wrote these scripts, I mean, nobody was going to give us money to make them. Like I ha was an actress that hadn't even been in a car commercial or anything. So like it, there was nothing to point to for why anybody should finance these things. So eventually we just decided we'd make them ourselves. And probably you make both of these movies. They play Sundance, they get picked up, they're distributed. How did you make sense of what came after? And what did you want after all that? I don't think we knew what to want. I think we were still just getting over the phone call of somebody calling and being <laughs> like, these movies are going to play at Sundance, both of them. And we were just like, what? We had game played the scenario of like, oh, if one of them gets in, the other one doesn't, then that's awkward, you know. But no, we'd never occurred to us that they could both get in. And, and so after that, it was just a bit of a whirlwind. But I think what I really understood was that like, we were the same people that nobody would return our calls mm. like literally 24 hours before. And then these films premiered at Sundance and then everybody would return our calls. And I think I really got in that moment, like, oh, okay, you're the same person before that moment and after. Your level of talent and ability hasn't changed. And so it's like, how do you stay grounded and rooted in that reality? Because the energy and the tension of the town is gonna come and go. It's like a heat seeking missile, but it's, not real. We started with those overarching stories and the values in this new one. Mm. When you look back now on those early works, mm. how would you describe what those stories are and what those values were mm. as someone in their late 20s, early 30s making them? Oh, wow. I mean, I guess some of them were there in the sense that, like, when we made Sound of My Voice, it was a story about a couple <laughs> with small cameras infiltrating a cult that was meeting in the basement in the San Fernando Valley. And it was the woman leading a cult, you know, claimed to be a time traveler. And at that time, like, there weren't other movies with women leading cults that you could go watch a, as a reference. Mm. So I guess in retrospect, we were always trying to write women that we hadn't seen on screen before. And I may be the same is true of Another Earth. Like, but I think what's really interesting about the work that you make from being an amateur. And I love the word amateur because the root of amateur is ama, which is for love. You know, you when you make something from love and no one's paying you for it and nobody thinks you can do it and 
nobody's going to give you the professional name of being a filmmaker or a writer or an actor. Like you just have to believe in yourself that you can do this thing. When you make something from that place, it all is really unconscious. And I think later on, when you are somewhat established and names and things do get put on you, you know, reviews, ideas, critiques, opinion. I think the real thing is to just try as best you can to bat all of that away and get back to the feeling you had when you made something just from the love of it without any validation or acknowledgement, just believing that that the story and the people you were telling it with mattered. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense that you actually did do the thing you're talking about in the abstract and real. You, you make these movies, like I said, they got picked up, they played Sundance, et cetera. And I want to go to 2013, where you're asked to give a commencement speech to uh, Georgetown University. Right. This is not as embarrassing as the haunted stories. Of the okay, okay, yeah. great, great, great. And I just want to play this clip from it because this through line of collaboration, the way you articulated here, I think, is, is worth holding in this moment. The truth is that we need each other, probably now more than ever. We need collectives of young economists who will pioneer ecological economics, who will get the prices of things, water, paper, gas, to reflect the true social cost of things, disappearing forests, polluted aquifers, wars waged, loss of human life. We need bands of young engineers who will reimagine what our cities will look like. How are we gonna move around? What is a future free of traffic jams and fossil fuels look like? We need artists of morality, we need architects of community. We need biologists of culture. We live in a time that is more complex than our parents' time or our parents' parents' time. And that also means that it is a time that is unusually saturated with meaning. There is so much to reinvent, so much to make better than it is. The two coolest things about Georgetown are this. One, it's the kind of school that let Mike and Zoll in. That's important. They were not necessarily obvious candidates on paper. And two, Georgetown makes you take the problem of God. Notice not the problem of you. At Georgetown, you have been taught to think grand, elliptical thoughts that have no answers, alongside narrow, linear thoughts that result in right answers. You have been forced to contemplate infinity. You have gotten outside of yourself. If you can, stay there. Stay there and bring other people with you. Hold on to your tribe. Dream impossible things, and then go forward and do them, because you absolutely can together. Thanks. That was pretty good. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Where does that land with you? Because I watched and thought, what a difference a decade makes. Yeah, that was 2013. Wow. I mean, the thing I was thinking watching it was like, I'm glad I haven't lost. Like, I watched that. And I'm like, she's idealistic. But then I'm like, I still have that in me, which I'm sort of amazed by because the decade with things the way they are right now can really beat it out of you. Mm hmm. But I still really do believe in people. And I still really believe in storytelling as this way of, you know, you, you go into a dark of a theater, even if you're watching at home and a story enters you and it unpacks and you're moved, like 
emotionally moved and something in you changes and your perspective changes. And there's something of value in that. In some ways, stories are more important than ever before because we need so much for our values to shift. We're sort of stuck right now. And I think we're stuck because our values have remained in a weird place, especially here in the Western world, stuck in the individual. And I really think that like, we're not actually that capable as individuals. Like it takes full groups of people to like achieve anything towards making a different world. And that's like our resistance movements are so important to think of as collectives and not like single charismatic leaders. That's vulnerable, but a collective is powerful. A collective, a collective can really do anything. I was thinking about the collective that formed in response to the OA being canceled. <laughs> I love that collective. I think some of them are here. <laughs> best collective, man. <laughs> Fucking best collective. So like that news, I know, must have been crushing to get. Yeah. In the aftermath of that, did your belief in the collective, was it fortified by the people who created this petition for it to have another season that has over 100,000 signatures for it to continue. Like, what did that base do? I don't know, did it help you keep going? It did, yeah. I mean, it completely did. It was so painful to end early. It was so painful to end early because I don't think it had to, I mean, tens of millions of people watch that show. It's an enormous number. In almost any other business model at almost any other time, that's just a runaway wild success. But it was coming at a moment when Netflix was changing its business model, streaming was changing the entire landscape, and it just fell in that gap. And so that's- What do you mean that gap? That gap between, I mean, it's what the strikes have been about. You know, it's this like vertical integration. It's like everything being under a couple of major corporate conglomerates and tech disruption coming into an industry and operating at a loss for so long. And that being a part of how tech disruption functions. The companies operate at a loss. They capture all the market share with that kind of predatory pricing. And then at some point, Wall Street's like, we got to start making money, honey. And then things change, you know, and the strikes are about contending with that, you know. Mm. And yeah, it was so painful. I think it would have been less painful if it hadn't been so beloved by so many people. I think when something doesn't quite work, I think as a storyteller, you're just like, oh, okay, that was ahead of its time or that didn't, we didn't quite figure out how to tell that one right, you know, but it was hard to let go of something that was such a success. But I sometimes think that the audience started to author it themselves, speaking of collective authorship, I think the authorship left us and it went into them. And that was so beautiful. What like, did that look like for, for people who maybe don't know? It looked like people, so the OA had these series of movements in it. And one of the big ideas behind the OA was we were thinking about how violence is uniquely cinematic. You know, you can write a violent passage in a novel and you read it and you're like, mm, that's scary. But when you see violence on screen, it like enters you viscerally. You can't shake the imagery. And we were thinking like, okay, what's something that's also, what's as cinematic as violence, but could function as an antidote to violence? And our answer to the, at the time to that was movement or, or dance or collective movement, whatever you want to call it. So we wrote this story around the idea that a young woman who 
has been held in captivity escapes. She comes to this group of teenage boys who are on the cusp of coming of age and coming into, you know, being men and they don't know how or how to do this in a place where like they're underfed by the public education system, they're underfed by their parents, they're underfed by the culture around them. And they meet this weird girl in on the edge of town and she starts telling them this wild story and teaching them these movements, you know, and then these movements actually in a way help them come of age. And part of that might just be that one of the ways to work through trauma is to actually go to dance or movement. Or, I mean, they've done all this research now doing work with veterans of war and how recovering from PTSD actually is much easier if you incorporate movement on some level. So she's doing this with them and they meet with a moment of violence in their own lives and her story and the resilience, I think, that she taught them and those movements become meaningful to them in that moment. And when the show was canceled, people just started posting these videos all over the internet of them doing the movements. Like, you know, 50 people just like in a square in Europe or a bunch of people in a nightclub, you know, somewhere. Or one video that I will never forget, a young man is filming his grandmother and she's out in the backyard and the sun is setting and it's hitting her face. And she's like, doing the movements out to the sun and she's so committed and so in it. And the, the, her grandson calls from the porch. He's filming her. He's like, grandma, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and she with complete belief is like, I'm going somewhere. And she meant it. And I'll never forget that video. And so in some ways it's like, yeah, we were authoring that story. We told 16 amazing hours of it. Thank God Netflix took those risks. Like, bless them for making something so far out and original and letting an audience meet it. And and then they got to author it back at us, you know? And, and the audience gave us our belief. We put something out in the world and they mirrored it back even better than we did, I think, in many ways. And also Twin Peaks came back after a decade, so who knows? Right? Stranger things have happened. Was that a Stranger Things joke? I know. No, okay. No, no. no, okay. Stranger Things. Yeah. Just genuinely, Stranger Things have happened. I know, but you like to speak in code. Oh, I'm not speaking in any code. Darby's there. apartment here is room 401. I don't even know. It's like an error code. I never know. Talk about amateur, amateur sleuth them. The OA Reddit. I, I feel like inspired. inspired us. That's I think, I think the happened. OA Reddit inspired us in many ways yeah. to write about amateur sleuthdom and the idea that collectives of people can find each other on the internet and they can basically solve anything that they put their minds to. The thing that's nagging me that I can't, I'm reluctant to go here, but I feel like we have to do it because you've talked about the larger economic forces that are animating this moment. Reason we can't talk about you acting. <laughs> when you describe a piece of art that has touched someone the way it touched those people. My first question is, how could that not survive on Netflix? And if it can't survive there, where can it survive? This is such a good question. And I, I think this is kind of where we're at in the world on so many levels, which is like, we I think we've just become too obsessed with economies of scale. And I think that problem is literally destroying every industry. It's like everything you scale up and make industrial, you destroy. Whether that's agriculture and food and how we get our food and like what's being sucked out of the soils and what's being put into it and like 
the fact that most of our grocery stores are just fill, are filled with things that have like all kinds of toxic chemicals in it that were invented initially for like war <laughs> and are now like in our food supply. I mean, everything about this system always wants to get bigger and on an industrial level. And I think that that has happened with stories. I think part of what's going on, part of this pushback that this community of artists is pushing back against the system and being like, we don't like what economies of scale is doing to storytelling. Like a story that appeals to tens of millions of people should be able to operate at a profit reaching its audience and should be sustainable. It shouldn't have to appeal to 100 million people to function. And in fact, I think it's quite dangerous when you're trying to make narratives that will appeal to 100 million plus people you can start to reach a place where you're getting to the lowest common denominator and you're only telling stories that reinforce the status quo and not stories that challenge us to think about how we might build a sustainable, functional future or, yeah. We started this conversation talking about artificial intelligence, alternative right. intelligence as described in your yeah. show. Make the case here, like, how does... AI not accelerate and exacerbate all the problems you just described? I think it does. You I mean, think it does? I think, well, look, so I So is think, there a glass half full and a glass half empty version of this? I mean, I think Ted Chiang did an interview recently where he described AI as a force multiplier for capitalism. And I think that that's really accurate. None of these things inside technology are bad inherently in and of themselves. It's just like, in what systems are they being developed by whom and to what end? And if everyone's constantly racing to beat each other to the marketplace to capture the market share first, like, are we really thinking these things through properly? You know, I mean, my fear right now about thinking about storytelling inside AI or replacing actors or whatever is that we're already in a place where we're moving towards a complete commodification of stories. It's very hard to make original ideas anymore. AI is a force that can very easily potentially just further commodify it. And, and what that then means is that, you know, large language models, they're not drawing from the future, they're drawing from the past. You know, their data sets are just everything that came from before, including all the racism, all the misogyny, all the ideas that have brought us to the present moment. And then the AI recycles those ideas and repackages them out into like new narratives that carry things. So I, for me, when I think about it, it's like we're already at a place where we're dangerously commodified. Mm. And then you add AI and you reach a place where you're just taking whatever is still left that is human inside stories. And you're like pulling that humanity away. You know? So you find hope in the future where? <laughs> in this, in you, like you make talk easy. You sit down and you do so much research. You call my mother and we have a deep, meaningful conversation. We get to have conversations with all the folks that are here tonight. Like, yeah, things are so dark right now. They really, they're really dark, but I still have a lot of faith in like, in people, individual people and mm. in those of us who are fighting to remain human in the face of all these forces that would rather we all just become products or numbers, you know, like I, I think anything is still really possible. And sometimes technology can be part of that. Mm. You know, it's like 
these kids that are some of the stories that inspired making a murder at the end of the world. It's like these are punk kids on the Internet who are uniting with like a retired teacher in Florida and then like a disbarred cop in Louisiana. And then and they're all on the Internet at night solving cases that like, you know, the police force hasn't been able to solve for decades. So there are ways in which people are finding each other and like knitting something together and doing things that haven't been possible before. And I think we can lean into that. So the existence of the show is somewhat of an answer to the question. Well, I don't know, Sam. You have to finish the show and call me and tell me if you think it's true. <laughs> this is the first time uh, I will do that, by the yeah, way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the first time you've directed. Yeah. And I was thinking if that was something you had ever wanted to do. And I thought, okay, let me go back to the first time that we did an interview. Whoa. And uh, I pulled it up and uh, I was 19. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, he's burying the lead. He was 19 when he interviewed me the this first time. This is over the phone. I, uh, very I remember this very well. I was like pacing around in my dorm room trying to sound smart. <laughs> you were probably in a hotel room trapped on a press day. <laughs> and um, I asked you this question Do you want to direct? Oh my God. What did I say? You said, you know, maybe at some point but I don't know if I'm ready for it in this moment. And then, um, in typical Brit Marling fashion, you proceeded to quote a passage from directing about directing from Kieslowski, demonstrating that you were definitely ready to do it. <laughs> and um, I actually have that passage here, if you'd like to read it. Okay. You don't sound so scared. No, I'm just... Start with the highlighted. Um, there's another thing, and it's slightly embarrassing. Everybody's got something on set. The cameraman's got a camera and a light meter, and the sound man's got a microphone. The electricians have got lights and so on. I haven't got anything. I hand my screenplay over to the script girls straight away in the morning and walk around with empty hands. It gives the impression, otherwise quite right, that I haven't got anything to do. Of course, I direct. I talk to the cameraman. I say something to the actors. I give some orders. I change something in the dialogue. Sometimes I even think of something, but I've got nothing in my hands. I was recently working with an elderly Polish cameraman. I was making Decalogue with him. He watched me. We were working together for the first time, and it was going well. He once said, the director's a guy who helps everyone. I like that simple definition. Yeah, I liked it too. I like it too, Sam. As a director, I was thinking like it's such a it's such a simple definition. And yet it's like also such a simple ask that is being made in um in this moment and is illustrated in that quote. We are in a moment striking where we're just asking for camera men gender notwithstanding here mm. within the quote cameramen to hold a camera mm. sound men to hold a boom which is so annoying and and if you've ever done it you're oh, you're sore afterward <laughs> for everyone to do their human job mm. to make something creative in collaboration mm. that is all that is being asked it really is all that's being asked yeah and i guess my last question for you is does your heart still want to do that? Yeah, be a human being on set. Yeah, it really does. Like, it's funny, this last story was so hard to tell. We told it in the height of the pandemic and w waves of 
people getting sick and things inside the climate crisis, storms that were bigger magnitude coming from directions they'd never come from before, dust storms, snowstorms, all these different things. But still, it's just amazing to me what can be achieved by people, like, and the kindness that comes out of people, even under crazy dress, when people haven't slept and they haven't eaten what they wanted to eat and they're on their own in some frigid remote location. The incredible kindness that comes out of people and and the inventiveness to make things work when they shouldn't work. I remember shooting one of the scenes that's a really important scene in the end of chapter one in A Murder at the End of the World. And there were 40 mile an hour wind gusts. The lights that we had set up were tumbling down the mountain like flaming tumbleweeds through the set. The actors were crying because it was so cold. The DIT tent blew away. And still, like 20 of us were just out there on this frozen tundra, huddled together, gonna make this damn scene come together no matter what. And it's a great scene and has so much, it has all the feeling of that perseverance in it. And that's why I love filmmaking so much. It reminds you all the time of how amazing it is to be human. And a, a huge part of that is your vulnerability in the face of the elements. And then like what is possible with a group of people in the face of that. I'll never get over it. I think it's great. I love this quote. The director is just there to help. Brett Marlin. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, guys. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. If you want to go above and beyond, and we would appreciate it if you did, sharing the show with a friend, sharing it on social media, and tagging us at Talk Easy Pod, whatever you do, it really does help new listeners find the show. I want to give a special thanks this week to Brenna Rifkin and Daniel Day at Narrative PR, the team at FX, and of course, our guest, Britt Marlin. Our conversation today was taped live from On Air Fest at KCRW in Santa Monica. To learn more about the audio festival, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. There, we'll also include a link to watch the first two episodes of A Murder at the End of the World. You can stream new episodes of the show every Tuesday on Hulu through December 19th. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend my talks with Michelle Williams, Natasha Leone, Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Quinta Brunson, Bill Hader, and Oscar Isaac. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to join our mailing list, 
drop me a line at sf at talkeasypod.com. That's sf at talkeasypod.com. You can also purchase one of our mugs. They come in cream or navy or our vinyl record with writer Fran Lebowitz at talkeasypod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Chris Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe and so long. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.